0: There's just something about a last stand that stirs the spirit. I think of the Spartans facing the Persians, counting in an honor to sacrifice their lives, holding a sort of smug disdain towards death. As they fought without any hope of winning, their glory was not in winning, and in their death, they were made immortal. Likewise, the defenders of the Alamo, they knew Santa Anna gave the order that no quarter would be given. They couldn't surrender and they couldn't retreat. So they fought. They fought on in the face of overwhelming odds. Fought till that courtyard and church ran red with both Texian and Mexican blood. Dying the death of those who never forget what is due their own honor. There are many other examples I could give, especially from the Old West era. Custer and his men there at the Greasy Grass. The soldiers and civilians of the Fetterman Massacre. Or even Nate Champion, who I covered on this podcast way back when. holed up in a cabin alone, surrounded fighting to the bitter damn end. And then there's the man we're going to discuss today, a much lesser-known man by the name of Britton Johnson, huddled alone behind his dead horse, levering round after round into his Henry. He knew his foe intimately, and he knew likely that surrender was completely off the table. So he fought, and he died, much like he lived, bravely. But who was Brit Johnson? And what did he do that possibly inspired one of the greatest movies ever made? And what is my personal opinion of that movie? Join me today as we delve deep into the murky waters of Texas history and try to pay homage to a man that even the writers, the harder they fall, forgot. My name's Josh and this is the Wild West Extravaganza. In October of 1864, Britton Johnson's son was murdered and his wife and two surviving children were taken captive by a Kiowa war party. Not willing to just sit back and hope for the best, Britt took matters into his own hands. Set out alone into Indian territory, determined to get his family back one way or another. And believe it or not, he was successful. Unfortunately, he made some enemies along the way. A desperate, savage foe who was chomping at the bit to catch up with Johnson once again. But let's just back up a bit. I wish I could tell you where and when Britton Johnson was born, but I can't. Truth is, there's very little in the way of cold, hard facts I can share when it comes to the man. As far as I can tell, there's more historical evidence that King Leonidas existed than Johnson, despite the nearly 1,400 years that separated the two men. Other than a marker that's placed near where Britt was killed, and other than an old gravestone on private property, I could find no official records that prove the man ever lived. He's listed on no census, at least not by name, and at least not that I could find. He's on no muster rolls, or tax forms, nor marriage certificates. Once again, at least not that I could find. The only proof he even existed seems to lay in those plaques that I just mentioned, as well as a whole bunch of hearsay and stories that were passed on down through the generations. And a lot of that has to do with the time and place as well as the man's ethnicity. Britt Johnson was a black man, likely born a slave. And I'm not trying to make a statement here, so save your angry emails. There just weren't a lot of great records kept in the mid-19th century as far as African Americans were concerned. I think we can all agree on that, right? That said, we think Britt was born in Tennessee and we think it was around the year 1840 although I'm leaning more towards 1835-ish myself. It also appears, like I mentioned, that it's very likely Britt was born a slave, owned by the Johnson family whose surname he himself bore. Moses Johnson, the patriarch, moved his family to Texas by way of Tennessee sometime in the 1840s. They were residing in Navarro County by the year of our Lord, 1850. On the census record for that year, James Allen, the son of Moses is listed as owning a 14-year-old, quote-unquote, mulatto, and a 12-year-old black female. These could possibly be Britt and his future wife, but there's no way to know for sure. The general consensus seems to be that Britt did come to Texas with the Johnson family, so it's possible, if not probable, but who knows. If this was Britt, the common 1840 year of birth is a bit off. By the year 1860, Moses and son James Allen, along with their families, had moved west to Young County, Texas. And although listed on that year's census, they are not recorded as owning any slaves. Several accounts I've found describe that this James Allen Johnson was staunchly anti-slavery and as such, as soon as he fully inherited Britt and the others, he set them free. Or at least gave them a huge amount of freedom without legally freeing them. I did also, full disclosure, find one source that alleges there's a possibility that Britt could be the son of James Allen. I'm not sure there's any evidence for this other than, you know, him being of mixed heritage, if that was even him listed as the mulatto on the slave schedule. Who knows? Matter of fact, who knows could be the subtitle of this entire damn episode. Like I said, I could find nothing backing up any of these claims. I cannot stress that enough. There is very little to go off of when it comes to Britt Johnson. As far as I'm aware, there are not even any books dedicated solely to the man. Non-fiction books, at least. Uh, Paulette Giles, the author of The News of the World, wrote a novel based on Britt's life titled The Color of Lightning. But I have not had the pleasure of reading it as of yet. And Britt is mentioned a few times in the book Indian Depredations of Texas, which I will discuss towards the end of this episode. We know that Britt Johnson, by 1864, then likely in his late 20s, was married with children. And if he was still a slave at this point, he certainly did not live a life common to other slaves. seems that Britt enjoyed a good deal of freedom. He was paid wages by the Johnson family, for example, had his own little spread, his own herd of livestock, had a family. He often went armed and was, from all accounts, a trusted and respected member of the community. A strange thing to say considering this was Texas in the 1860s. But this particular part of Texas was a bit of an anomaly. Young County, up there in North Texas, about a hundred miles northwest of fort Worth, and in eighteen sixty four Young County was very much the frontier. matter of fact, one could say that in eighteen sixty four the citizens of Young County were effectively living behind enemy lines in a land where every man is expected to saddle his own horse and kill his own snakes. It was the character that mattered most, and it seems that this also held true as far as Britt Johnson was concerned. There was a good deal of respect not only in 1864, but especially in the years to follow, as we will talk about more here in a little bit. First, though, since we're talking about Young County, I did find something I wanted to share with you that I thought was really interesting, something that I was aware of, but I had never seen represented in cold, hard numbers. I decided to look up and see what the population of Young County, Texas was in 1860. The information is readily available online from various sources, and in less than a minute I had my answer. Five hundred and ninety two souls in eighteen sixty ninety three of which were slaves. Now, I knew Young County was sparsely populated at this time, so that number five hundred and ninety two that didn't surprise me, and this was eighteen sixty, so okay ninety three slaves wasn't exactly unexpected either. I can only assume that Britt was one of them. It was that next number I saw that really caught my attention. the population of Young County in eighteen seventy just one hundred and thirty nine people as opposed to the nearly 600 that lived there a decade prior. That's a 77% decrease in population. I know what you're thinking, the Civil War, right? Well, you're partially correct. Young County was home to Fort Belknap, the northernmost out of a chain of military posts that manned the Texas frontier, spanning all the way south to the Rio Grande. And yes, it's true that when the Civil War began, the soldiers posted at Fort Belknap were sent back east to fight. And so were most of the eligible fighting aged men of Young County, enlisting with whichever side their conscience told them to and marching off to war. Still, though, it were not no seventy seven percent of Young County comprised of fighting men. And Fort Belknap wasn't left completely abandoned. The locals used it, as did a small group of Confederate soldiers under the Texas Frontier Regiment. No, what happened, in reality, was a mass exodus. Left unprotected, the settlers of Young County knew they'd be easy pickings for the hostiles. And as we're about to find out, they were correct. With most of the soldiers and folk gone back east, the Comanche and Kiowa began raiding almost at will, leaving these settlers as sitting ducks. So yeah, the people who could leave did so while the getting was good. Those who stuck around till 1870 were either the toughest of the tough, the bravest of the brave, or just the craziest of the crazy. I can't for the life of me imagine trying to raise a family in such an environment. I truly, I can't. According to the website World Population Review, the country of El Salvador currently holds the highest homicide rate of 52 per 100,000 citizens. For context, that's over 10 times higher than it is here in the United States. I would not move my family to El Salvador. I wouldn't take my kids there, not even on vacation. Hell, I'd probably be nervous just visiting by myself. But in the same way that the poor citizens of El Salvador can't just pick up and move somewhere safer, Neither could those poor farmers and ranchers of Young County. You know, some of them were just destitute. They had no choice but to hang on to that little plot of land they had. And Lord knows their wives and children and slaves didn't have no choice. By the way, I did look up the population of neighboring Jack County to the east, and they likewise saw a drastic shift in population, although not quite as bad, only dropping about 30% between 1860 and 1870. According to the Texas State Historical Association, It was these raids by hostiles that, quote, led many of the original settlers to abandon the area. By 1864, according to county tax records, there were only 31 slaves. In 1865, the county's government was dissolved. In Stephen Harrigan's book, Big Wonderful Thing, he writes, quote, The settlers had bloodily pressed the line of white settlement westward in the years before the Civil War, only to be bloodily pushed back as army protection evaporated and frontier forts were all but abandoned. With few troops to protect them, the people who had staked out homesteads in the most fought over stretch of prairie in Texas, the clear fork of the Brazos River, organized themselves into militias, conducting their own patrols and raids, and even built their own civilian forts. End quote. As you can see, the citizens of Young County, Brit included, had every reason to be worried. And on october thirteenth, eighteen sixty four, their worst nightmare came to fruition. It was a large combined force of Kiowa and Comanche. Estimates ranged from upwards to a 1,000, but I highly doubt it was that many. Probably just a couple hundred, maybe. Truth is, it could have been less than a 100, and the outcome would have been the same. Now, I'm not going to go into a long history on the Comanche or their allies, the Kiowa. We had discussed that previously on this podcast. But they were still very much a force to be reckoned with in the 1860s. Still very much the lords of the Southern Plains. They had perfected the art of the quick raid. You know, get in, strike fast and hard, and get the hell out. Disappearing with horses and captives, leaving behind burned-out homesteads, and grieving widows in their wake. And that is exactly what happened that fall day there in Young County. At the time of the raid, our subject, Britton Johnson, was away on business in Weatherford, and had left his pregnant wife, Mary, and three children at the nearby Fitzpatrick Ranch for safekeeping. Not too far from Fort Belknap. Now, the Fitzpatrick Place, also known as the Carter Trading Post, was home to 38-year-old widow and grandmother Elizabeth Fitzpatrick, a very interesting lady herself. Elizabeth was a white lady from Alabama who had the gall to marry a black man, and I didn't even know that was a legal possibility back in those days. Unfortunately, that husband was murdered, and by the time 1860 came around, poor Elizabeth had lost two additional husbands. Life was hard in those days, and Elizabeth's life was about to get a whole hell of a lot harder. She was a tough cookie, though. You're going to hear more about her in a little bit. A very, very tough lady who led a very unfortunate life. Other than Elizabeth, Mary Johnson, and the Johnson kids, you also had Elizabeth's mixed-race children. 13-year-old Elijah Carter and 21-year-old Susanna Carter Durkin, who I believe was also a widow, along with Susanna's children. Lottie Durkin, aged 5, and Millie Jane, aged 2. And you also had an unnamed infant boy, a newborn. As for Brit, and Mary Johnson, Jim, the seven-year-old, was the oldest. The daughter, possibly named Cherry, was four years old. And the boy, possibly named Jube, uh, maybe short for Jubal, was I'm not sure how old. I couldn't find that out. Three women and seven children, alone and unprotected. A target no war party would dare pass up. Story goes that Susanna initially tried to fend the warriors off with a shotgun and was killed for her efforts. Young Jim Johnson broke and ran for safety but was also cut down before he even got out the gate. The raiders began pillaging and they found that newborn baby boy hidden under a bed. Took him and bashed his head into a wall. Guess the bastards had no use for a crying baby on the warpath. The others, poor Elizabeth and her son and her surviving grandchildren, along with Mary and her surviving two children, were unceremoniously trussed and tossed up on ponies and taken. Now this attack on the Fitzpatrick Place was just one of many targets in what's now known as the Elm Creek Raid. Some of Young County's citizens survived by hiding in the brush or caves there in the bank of the Brazos River. Others were able to fight back, like the men of the Bragg Ranch, who rallied and counted for several dead warriors, including a chief by the name of Little Buffalo. One of the defenders, a Confederate soldier, was able to break through and alert his fellow brothers-in-arms of the Border Regiment. They gave chase, but there weren't but 14 of them, and five never made it back. One account I found claimed that when the surviving pursuers returned, they was riding double and their horses looked like pincushions, with all those arrows bristling out of them. All total eleven homes were burned down and over a dozen settlers were killed, along with several being taken captive. Hundreds of a head of livestock were stolen as well. And then, poof, just like that the raiders were gone. The misery, however, was far from over. Not for those held captive, and certainly not for those left to mourn and bury their dead. One of whom was our very own Brett Johnson, returning home only to find that his life had been completely destroyed. His son was already buried by the time he arrived, and his wife and surviving children were among the missing. Can't imagine how he must have felt. I couldn't imagine that now. I mean, what do you do? Right now, right? Modern day times, you call the cops. Various agencies get involved. APBs, AMBER alerts, flyers. Massive army of volunteers walking the streets, knocking on doors, asking for any information, any witnesses, any clues. We've got cameras on every corner. DNA. DNA. GPS tracking and every fucking thing. And it's still fucking frightening. Still no guarantee you're going to get your kids back. But in 1864, what the fuck do you do? There's no sheriff that's going to follow after a large war party of Comanche. There was no army. There were hardly any Texas Rangers to speak of. And all the locals who might be willing to volunteer to help, they'd be busy with their own dad trying to put their own lives back together. Besides, you know how the Comanche and Kiowa do after a raid like this. They travel hard and fast. They split up into dozens of small groups all going in different directions. Hell, you need a hundred men to follow them effectively. At least a hundred men. And I doubt there was an available hundred men within a few hundred miles of Young County. So Britt made a decision. The type of resolution that I think most of us hope we'd have the nerve to make. He decided to go it alone. His wife was out there somewhere. Taken. And you know damn well what that means. If she was still alive, she'd probably wish she wasn't. And she'll never be the same again. Your two children are young enough that hopefully they haven't suffered the same fate, but they're not able to keep up to make themselves useful. They'll be done for as well. Britt would have known this. He'd have seen the bodies before. He'd have heard the stories. Stone cold hard truth of the matter was that nobody was going to go rescue his family for him. And knowing as much, like I said, Britt set out alone, deep into Comancheria, committed to either retrieve his family or die trying. But he didn't light out immediately, as much as I'm sure he wanted to. The raid took place in mid-October, so Johnson would have to wait till spring. A long, slow winter full of what I imagine was many sleepless nights. In the meantime, several of his neighbors took up a collection. Remember what I said earlier about a certain respect that Britt seemed to garner, despite being a slave? As such, when Britt set off in search of his family, he was well-provisioned. He had a good horse beneath him, good saddle as well as a pack horse, two revolvers and a Henry repeating rifle, food, blankets, trade goods, and a shitload of ammunition. By the way, other than being a black man, there's not a whole lot in the way of description when it comes to Britt Johnson. I did find a few things, though. In the book Indian Depredations of Texas, Britton is described as having a, quote, splendid physique and a fine expression of face. That's okay, fair enough. And then I found yet another description, this by Dot Babb, who was another child captive of the Comanche who came into contact with Britt, who also said he had a, quote, squinted physique. What the hell, man? How splendid was this dude's physique? So I did a Google image search for Britt Johnson, and holy shit, they weren't lying. You don't believe me? You can do the same search yourself. Not only did I find a, a very splendid physique, but also smooth caramel skin. A pearly white smile. I'm not going to lie, one hell of a nice ass. And then I realized I had the wrong Britt Johnson. Uh, yeah, it turns out that uh, while our Britt Johnson was described twice as having a splendid physique, I did not make that up. There is another Britt Johnson. A female sports reporter who also evidently has a uh, splendid physique. But she ain't our Britt Johnson. Who, like I was saying, was determined to rescue his family. Damn it, let's get back on subject. And by the way, it didn't take him very long at all to make contact with the Comanche. He rode straight to the heart of their territory, alone, not trying to conceal himself. He wasn't riding at night and hiding out during the day, and it ain't like they were hiding out on their own home turf either. Now there are two separate stories of what happened next. One goes that Britt was able to locate the band that had his wife and children. He gained their trust and even became a member of the tribe living with them for a while before escaping with his family while pretending to be out on a hunt. Sounds good, but that's not what really happened. Best I can tell is that Britt initially made contact with a lone Comanche who he was able to communicate with using a mix of sign language and Spanish. Soon, some other Comanches showed up, and after a few tense moments, Britt was able to parlay with them as well. He even recognized some of their horses as those taken in the raid several months before, so he knew he was already making some headway. Johnson learned that while this band did have some white captives, it was their Kiowa brethren who were currently holding on to some black folks. Got to imagine that this strengthened Brit, gave him a little bit of hope that these blacks in question were his wife and children. Johnson then somehow convinced these Comanche to let him ride with them for a spell. Even befriended a few of them to the point that they agreed to help him get his family back. Now how much of this friendship was genuine on Brit's part? I can't say. I personally would have had a hard time getting all buddy-buddy with the same bunch that helped kill my son and kidnap my family. But I reckon the dead were dead, and he was focused on the living. I also do wonder how much of his survival at this point hinged on him being a black man. This is something that pops up from time to time when reading about Britt Johnson, and there may be some truth in it. He would have been an oddity to the Comanche in Kiowa. He also would have likely came off as being big medicine. These warriors probably thought he was crazy or extremely brave, or maybe a little bit of both. One man, alone, in their territory by choice. He wasn't some stranded traveler or lost pilgrim who wandered into their trap. He was there on purpose. He came looking for them. That's big balls right there, and I got a hard time believing that this wasn't recognized. We know the Comanche respected bravery, sometimes above all else. Whatever the case, like I said, a few of the Comanche took a liking to Brit, and they decided to lend him a hand when it came to getting his family. Unfortunately, Britt was unable to locate his wife and kids on this trip. It wasn't a total loss, though. Not only did he establish a relationship with the Comanche, but he was able to confirm that Elizabeth Fitzpatrick was still alive. He was unable to ransom her, but at least he knew she was there. This wasn't all for nothing, and like I said, the little bit of intel he was able to collect led him to believe that his family was still alive. He also found out that Elizabeth's son, Elijah, was killed shortly after the raid. The boy had grown sick on the harsh retreat and was no longer able to sit a horse. And rather than just leave him, the sons of bitches built a fire and threw young Elijah on it. Forced his mother to watch him burn to death. Unbeknownst to either Elizabeth or Britt, little Millie Jane Durkin likely didn't survive the winter either. Although she was very close to getting rescued on at least one occasion. Almost a month after she was abducted, Kit Carson, remember him from several of my previous episodes? left New Mexico with a few hundred men under his command, tasked with punishing the Comanche, who had been terrorizing travelers on the Santa Fe Trail. This expedition culminated in the first Battle of Adobe Walls that I covered way back in May of 2021. Link in this episode's show notes if you haven't already listened to it. Long story short, Carson and his men damn near got themselves massacred. What I didn't know, and of course what Carson didn't know, was little Millie Jane Durkin was present at one of those villages that Kit and his men approached that day hidden away in some bushes. The New Mexicans were forced to flee, however, and that winter was a harsh one. Starvation, disease, and freezing temperatures all formed a deadly combination, and both Comanche and captive alike suffered, and not everybody made it, including young Millie. Maybe. Millie's situation is very intriguing, and there may be more to that story, which I will touch on towards the end of this episode. Trust me, you're gonna want to hear it. By the way, a lot of wormholes to explore on this episode. Like I said, Britt was not able to find his family on this trip, and he was unable to ransom Elizabeth Fitzgerald, and he was soon forced to return to the settlements. Just for a short amount of time, though, I assume he was re-upping on supplies and picking up trade goods. He would return, and keep returning. Multiple sources say Britt made at least three solo trips into the heart of the Comanche territory searching for captives, and other trips with companions. Basically, what he was doing was making his rounds to various bands, learning their way, seeing what they knew, learning how to haggle with the wily Kiowa in case he did come across them. He'd visit frontier forts and trading posts, Indian agencies, anywhere where he could possibly get a lead to where his family was. And in the course of all that, he was also picking up intelligence on other captives, white captives. Legend has it that during all these travels, Britt was successful in rescuing some of these other captives. Although I could find no proof of this nor any names of these supposed captives that he did rescue. I'm not saying he didn't, just that we don't have no proof. Gotta have proof, you know. If you just go with what the legend says, you'll hear that Britt wandered the Comancheria for years and years and finally snuck in and rescued his family all on his own. And that likely did not happen. Here's what we know for a fact. His family was ransomed and returned to him in June of 1865, eight months after their capture. Okay, we know Britt didn't start searching until the fall, so it's likely he was only out there on the hunt making all them trips for about four months. Once again, there's a few different versions of exactly what happened, but it appears that a friendly Comanche chief named Asa Heavey helped to make this happen. And of course, not a lot of info on Mr. Asa Heavey either, but he does appear to have been one of the signers on the Treaty of Tehuacana Creek in 1846 and a member of the Penateca Band of Comanche. Either on his own or with Britt, once again, sources differ, Asa Havy was able to secure the release of Mary Johnson and her children, as well as Lottie Durkin, Elizabeth Fitzpatrick's young granddaughter, and this reunion occurred possibly near present-day Verdon, Oklahoma. Now, I tend to think it was both men working together and that there was a bit of treachery or trickery involved, as the Kiowa were said to hold a grudge thereafter, even threatening to kill Britt if they ever caught him alone. And I don't think Britt secured the rescue alone because literally every version has a friendly Comanche helping him. There's got to be some truth in there. One of the few sources backing up the claim that Britt had a hand in securing his family's release comes from Samuel Kingman, a lawyer who was present during an Indian council in Kansas in 1865. According to his diary, or journal, if you want to get all manly about it, a quote, black man from Texas came in today and reports that he has redeemed his wife and two children from the Comanches, giving them seven ponies, end quote. Now, likely, you know, he got Comanches and Kyle was mixed up. Whatever. One thing is for certain, Britt never gave up and he had balls of steel. And in the end, he was reunited with his family. And as much as I'd like to say they lived a long, happy life, well, it may have been a happy one, but it weren't very long. The same month that Britt had his family restored to him, something else interesting happened there in Texas. Federal troops arrived in Galveston and finally freed the slaves. The war had been officially over for two months and the Emancipation Proclamation in effect for over two years. Yet many slave owners in the Lone Star State were reluctant to give up what they considered their property. These Union troops put an end to that, taking control of the state and ensuring that all enslaved people were finally given their freedom. This happened on June 19th, now a federal holiday known as Juneteenth. I don't know how aware Brit was to any of this, but probably he heard about it. One thing is for sure, though. Whatever his slave status was when he set out in search of his family, by the time they were reunited, they were all free. Not only from the Comanche, but also their white slaveholders as well. You know, as good as he may have been treated as a slave, he was still a slave. He was still another man's property. And there's just no easy way to swallow that, you know? Moving forward, Britt and his newly liberated family relocated to Parker County, where he started his very own freighting business. And believe it or not, he continued to travel into Indian territory in search of captives. I think this is where a lot of the respect you'll see for Britt really comes into play. The dude just seemed to have no fear when it came to putting his life on the line. First for his family, then for the families of others. Britt was seen by Dot Bab, who I previously mentioned, sometime after the young man's capture in 1865. Unable to secure the boys' release, however, Dot did mention that Britt seemed well-received by the Comanche, and that he was, quote, moving among the Indians, trying to secure captives, end quote. Special Indian Commissioner Vincent Kayla reported that Johnson spent a week at Fort Cobb in 1869 looking for a captive girl, possibly the Durkin girl. Fort Cobb, by the way, was located near present-day Anadarko, Oklahoma, not far from where Britt was able to secure his family's freedom. So Yeah. Britt Johnson was moving around quite a bit, doing freighting and teamster work, supporting his family, and evidently helping to rescue other captives. Allegedly never asking for money in return. Once again, take it with a grain of salt. Lots of legends around old Britt Johnson. There's got to be some truth in there, though, as I did read that more than once. Finally, Britt's time would come. Nobody's luck lasts forever, right? You can't tempt fate as long as he did, constantly venturing into enemy territory without finally getting hit. And if there's any lingering question as to Britton Johnson's courage, well, all one has to do is take a look at his final stand. It was November 1871. Britt would have either been in his early 30s or around 35 years of age. So young to have lived such a full life. And man, that's how I know I'm getting old, that I think of somebody in their mid-30s as young. Ironically, Britt was traveling through Young County when he bit the dust not far from where the Elm Creek Raid occurred all those years prior. He and two other black men, Dennis Cureton and Paint Crawford, were hauling freight. Now this was six months after the Warren Wagon Train Raid, also known as the Salt Creek Massacre, that I spoke about on the episode I did on Kiowa Chief Satanta. Link to that episode in the show notes as well, but it does kind of give an idea of the trouble brewing in Texas at that time. It also tells me that Britt and his companions knew what sort of danger they were in. By the way, there were a dozen men there with that worn wagon train, seven of whom were killed. Britt would not have the luxury of all those extra guns. Matter of fact, he would have the luxury of no extra guns. According to eyewitnesses, the Kiowa struck so quickly that they killed Britt's two companions almost immediately, leaving him to fight alone. Being the savvy frontiersman he was, Britt cut his own horse's throat and pulled it to the ground and started using it as a breastwork. And it was there, behind the saddle, that Britt made his last desperate stand. I don't know how long it took for them Kiowa to finally put old Britt under, but I do know it weren't easy. Once his body was recovered, it was found surrounded by nearly 200 rifle shells. He was also heavily mutilated in a manner that suggested his killers were a tad on the angry side. They gutted the man and stuffed his dead dog inside the empty cavity. He and the other two were scalped, but their scalps weren't taken, just discarded on the ground. Now, like I said, there were eyewitnesses, another group of freighters who witnessed the ordeal from afar, and they do back up these claims of bravery. Their account, coupled with the large amount of spent rifle shells, attested the fact that Britt Johnson did not go gentle into that good night. And I can't help but wonder what he was thinking there in his last moments. Did he know what he was done for? I mean, at some point, he had to know. Do you think of his boy who was killed seven years prior? Think about how he was about to be reunited with him? Did he mourn his wife and living children, wonder if they'd know what happened to him? Wonder how they'd make it without him? Or was he just an autopilot, too busy to contemplate his situation? Who knows? No telling how many Kiowa he took with him either. I'm willing to bet it was more than a couple. I found an article on History.net that I think makes a good point. It reads, quote, An obituary published in Texas newspapers lionized him, him being Britt Johnson, as a noble-hearted man and a stranger to fear who would go alone on foot into Indian camps and either steal or ransom white children, whom the Indians had taken into captivity. These acts of chivalry, all uncompensated, seemed to be his delight. He succeeded in getting three white children not long before his death. Researchers have not been able to confirm these later rescues, and Johnson's last journeys may in fact have been unsuccessful. If the stories about his courageous feats were in fact exaggerated, the obituary reveals that the myth-making had already begun during his lifetime. End quote. Well put. You know, we do tend to enjoy our myths, especially when it comes to Old West history. I know I get a lot of angry emails every time I bring up race, but it's an undeniable part of life, so you can't just ignore it, alright? That said, for a population of white people in Texas in 1871 to think so highly of the man, to respect him enough to pen such an obituary, speaks volumes. We'll likely never know the truth when it comes to the fine details of Britton Johnson's life, but it's an inspiration nonetheless, to me the least. The man had guts and he lived his life in such a fashion that proved it. And he sold his life in such a fashion as to garner respect and admiration where such weren't given away freely. As far as the Kiowa who did him in, one source claims there were 25 warriors being led by a Mamanti, aka Swan, also known as Skywalker He was a medicine man and an active participant in the Red River War, and was one of nearly 30 Kiowa prisoners sent to Fort Marion in Florida. And it was there that he would die in July of 1875, possibly from dysentery. I guess he wasn't as good at the Oregon Trail video game as I am. Now, for the big question. In this episode's intro, I teased that Britt Johnson was possibly the inspiration for what some consider to be one of the most important movies ever made. And if you haven't guessed it yet, that movie was The Searchers. The Searchers is considered to be one of the most influential films of all time, and one that many critics cite as the greatest western movie ever made. The story revolves around a man named Ethan Edwards, as he searches for his young niece who was taken captive by the Comanche. A rescue mission that ends up spanning years as he tracks one band or another, visiting Frontier posts and Indian agencies. All the same stuff that Britt Johnson did, just doing whatever he can to locate his niece. And if you've seen it, you know how it ends. Great movie. But was The Searchers really based on the life of Britt Johnson? You already know what I'm going to say, right? Maybe. After all, Britt wasn't the only man on the Texas frontier searching for his captured relatives. Another notable searcher who was successful was a man named Jesse Chisholm of Chisholm Trail fame. Another was a guy by the name of James W. Parker, uncle to Cynthia Ann Parker and great uncle to Quanah Parker. James was there for the Fort Parker Massacre. He was one of the men working in the fields when the Comanche struck. Before he and the others were able to stop the raiders, they were gone with James' daughter Rachel, his grandson, sister-in-law, and his niece and nephew, Cynthia Ann, and her brother John. Although James's sister-in-law and daughter were ransomed back eventually, the Comanche did kill his grandson, and he understandably had a lifelong hatred for the tribe. Similar to the hatred portrayed by John Wayne's character in The Searchers. And James Parker did venture alone into Comancheria, just like Britt Johnson. And a good 20 years or more before Britt Johnson. The Fort Parker raid was in 1836. Britt Johnson, if alive at the time, was only a baby. And Parker didn't even have the luxury of repeating rifles or revolvers back then. By 1845, Parker, completely broke and with his wife fearing that he'd be killed, stopped these solo excursions, but he did continue to contribute financially when he had the money, to those who kept looking. He knew his niece and nephew were out there somewhere, and he wanted them back. Also, the rescue at the end of The Searchers greatly resembles the real-life quote-unquote rescue of Cynthia Ann Parker by Texas Rangers. Furthermore, the movie was adapted from a novel of the same name, written by Alan LeMay in 1954. And he did visit the Parker clan in Texas while doing research and seemed very interested in the story of James Parker. Okay, well, by that account, it sure sounds like the movie was based on Parker more than it was based on Britt Johnson. Not so quick. James Parker and the story of the raid on Fort Parker was just one of the many abduction stories that author Alan LeMay studied. 64 stories all total. I mean, there was just no shortage of stories when it came to families being torn apart by Comanche those frontier days in Texas. I highly recommend a book called Captives by Scott Zesch if you'd like to read more on them. Anyway, evidently, per surviving notes from LeMay's research, Britt Johnson was his primary quote-unquote searcher that he leaned on for inspiration. I have not seen these notes, so I have no idea what they do or do not indicate. I'm just reciting what I've read. But yeah, this is one of those things where it's obviously a mix, right? There's no indication that Britt was obsessed with revenge, as was John Wayne's character, nor did Britt want to kill his wife like the fictional Ethan intended to do with his niece. The Searchers really is a good movie, by the way. I watched it again last week. FYI, it is currently available on HBO Max if you have a subscription. But I already know some of y'all old school cats have that hoe on VHS. We're going to talk more about that movie here in a minute, but first, I got a lot of loose ends I want to touch on real quick. This episode's already running long enough as it is, so let's get down to it. Daddy's got to get some sleep, and right now I smell like motherfucking baby formula, uh, non-GMO verified butternut squash, and coffee. Let's finish up with Britt, because we all got things to do. After his death, he and his co-workers were buried right there where they fell in a common grave. That grave site is now on private property. There is a grave marker, however, that is not the actual location of Britt Johnson's grave. The real location is an undisclosed secret. I'm not sure if anybody living actually knows where it is, but if they do, it's well protected and has been passed on down through the generations. And it's a good thing, too. Despite being on private property, more than a few gravediggers have been caught trying to sneak away with any macabre souvenirs they could find. I spoke with a guy who I'm not going to name here because I did not ask permission and I have no way of verifying his story but I spoke with a man who knows the landowners, or so he says. They have supposedly even had to chase away gravediggers that were so bold as to bring a backhoe on their property, trying to dig up Britt's remains. And that is beyond weird to me. Let the man finally rest. He did enough for Texas. Another thing. Britt had himself a nickname, and it's not a name that I can uh, repeat on this podcast. A few older sources will refer to Britt Johnson as Negro Brit. And, well, let's just say that's the family-friendly version of what he was actually called. You know the word. Look, dog, I ain't trying to get Joe Rogan, alright? I don't need The Rock coming after me on Twitter. Alright, so what happened to Britt Johnson's wife and children? I got no idea. I've searched and searched and searched and I can't find anything. I was hoping to find Brit's 1870 census record at least, but I guess he was just on the move too much. I don't know anything about Brit's wife other than her name was Mary. We don't know how her captivity went, how rough it was, how she was able to adjust to society again once she was returned. You know, I'll say it again, she was black. There just weren't a lot of reporters or authors lining up to find out what black women had to say in 1865. And it's a damn shame too. A lot of lost history due to situations just like this. Brit and Mary's two children that survived were named Jube and Cherry, I think. I could not find any Jube Johnsons on Ancestry in Texas during that time. I did find a few Cherry Johnsons who were black females, but none that really lined up or that I could find living with a Mary Johnson. Or any Mary. Of course, Mary could have and likely remarried if she survived her husband. I don't know. If you're a Britt Johnson expert and you have answers to any of this stuff, please, please contact me. Wildwestextra.com and hit that contact button. If you're an expert genealogist and you need a project to work on or a challenge, contact me as well. I think this might give you a run for your money. Let's find out what happened to Mary and her children. Let's find out where they were buried, how long they lived, what kind of lives they lived afterwards. Let's find out if Britt Johnson has any living descendants. Of all those others who were taken captive during the Elm Creek raid, they were mostly all recovered. Remember you had Britt's family that got uh, ransomed along with Lottie Durkin. Elizabeth Fitzpatrick was held in captivity by the Kiowa for just over a year before she was ransomed as well. Once rescued, Elizabeth was taken to the Call Mission at Council Grove, Kansas, where she took care of other recently released prisoners. For the next 10 months, Elizabeth did this. Working tirelessly as a nurse, fighting on behalf of recent captives to secure their health care. Seeing to it that the other survivors had safe transportation back to their homes, doing whatever she could to help. And she never gave up hope for little Millie, the granddaughter that supposedly froze to death that first winter. She believed the girl was still alive and even thought she might have gotten a glimpse of her at some point in a Kiowa camp. Now, if you'll remember, Elizabeth Fitzpatrick was a three-time widow before she ever hit the age of 40. Then she witnessed her children killed and grandchildren stolen. She endured a year of God only knows what as a captive. I mean, she was pregnant when she was ransomed, by the way, if that tells you anything. The baby, unfortunately, was stillborn. Upon Elizabeth's return to Texas, she gave marriage a try once more. And once more, she became a widow. She lived until 1882, and as recently as just a few years before her death, was still right in the Office of Indian Affairs in Washington to report that her granddaughter may still be living with the Kiowa. That poor woman, man. The hell she endured during her life and she never gave up hope. Something tells me she probably touched other people's lives as well. All those other captives that she helped, the children and broken women, people more broken than even she was. I got to imagine she was a shoulder to lean on, for her other granddaughter, Lottie Durkin, as well. Speaking of Lottie, the youngster that Britt allegedly ransomed with his family, she may have been the last surviving member of the captives taken from the Fitzgerald spread way back in 1864. You can actually find a picture of Lottie online as a young woman. The Comanche evidently tattooed her up pretty good, including her forehead, and that forehead tattoo is visible in the picture. She and her grandmother were reunited, of course, and in 1874, at the age of 15, Lottie got married to a town marshal in Fort Griffin, ended up having a couple of kids, and moved to Tescosa, Texas. Had another child in July of 1887, but sadly there were complications. The cholera took her newborn son, and the quote-unquote childbirth fever took Lottie a month later. She was 27 years old. And that's about all of them. You know, other than Britt's family, but they don't count because they were black, I guess. Seriously, that's the only explanation I can think of as far as the lack of any sort of historical knowledge we have. If you haven't figured it out, I really want to know what became of them. There may be a chance that another survivor outlived them all. Remember Millie Durkin, the grandchild that Elizabeth thought was still alive? Remember how I said she was hidden during the Battle of Adobe Walls? so close to being rescued, and then probably died that winter of exposure. Well, an elderly woman named Millie Goomby, or Goombai, came forward in the year 1931 with one hell of a claim. She said she was the missing Millie Durkin, granddaughter of Elizabeth Fitzpatrick. She would only live another two years, but if that's true, that's a pretty crazy story. I didn't go digging too much. I'll leave a link in this episode's show notes if you would like to dig further. Obviously, uh, it goes without saying that historians don't really believe her claims. There's just not a lot of evidence. Mrs. Goombi, or Goombai was raised Kiowa. She had a Kiowa husband. She was Kiowa in every sense of the word, culturally. But there's a lot of pictures of her online, and she sure as hell does look white to me. Her children claim she was a quarter black, which would back up her claim further, as her grandfather, Elizabeth's first husband, was a black man. Either way, very interesting stuff. And finally, as if you needed any more apocryphal or probably not true claims, you have the fourth child of Britt Johnson. Remember, Mary Johnson was supposedly pregnant when she was taken captive. We haven't talked about that baby yet, have we? Well, here we go. During the Great Depression, the Works Project Administration did an oral history interview with a guy named John Johnson, who claimed to be that child. Said he was born in December of 1864 but that he wasn't ransomed with his mother and that he continued to live with the natives for another eight years. According to a lady named Christy Clarity, in her very interesting article on Britt Johnson that I'll link to, there are a lot of holes in uh, Johnson's narrative. I couldn't find out any more info on John, but it looks like his story may be told in Life Among the Indians, the WPA narratives by David Laver. And I don't know, man, John Johnson sounds a little bit too much like crintus the dentist. If you ask me. Oh, and by the way, how crazy is it that the Durkin girl, if that was her, was still alive in 1931? Which made me think do we know who the last surviving captive of the Comanche was? Well, I started looking, and it could be that that distinction is held by a Bianca Bab Bell, sister of Dot Bab, who you heard me previously mention. She and her brother were taken captive by the Comanche in 1866 when she was just 10 years old and Bianca was held for about seven months before being ransomed. And she lived all the way to 1950. Just think, if she lived another six years, she could have celebrated her 100th birthday party by watching The Searchers. Speaking of The Searchers, one of my favorite scenes is at the very beginning when the good Reverend slash Texas Ranger captain shows up. The whole house is alive, everybody's moving back and forth, hollering and talking the whole time, they're trying to serve him coffee and breakfast. The whole thing seems like it was filmed in just one take. It's a great scene. I don't know why I like it. I just do. Did you know that the guy who plays the captain, Ward Bond, was only 53 years old when that movie was made? Yep. Guy looks like he's at least 60. Men just age different back in those days. Uh, Turns out he and the Duke were lifelong friends, despite John Wayne accidentally pulling a Dick Cheney and peppering Ward with a shotgun during a hunting accident. That shotgun, by the way, was later willed to John Wayne after Ward Bond's death, proving that the man had a sense of humor. I love The Searchers. It's a great movie. I can't stress that enough. I love the character of Moe's. I love the authenticity of some of the scenes. You know, there's a lot of stuff they couldn't show on screen back in those days, but they do a very good job of hinting the real atrocities. And I know a lot of people probably find it annoying or a bit cringy, but I love that character played by Ken Curtis. You know the guy. Ha, ha, ha. I'll tell you what I don't like, though. I hate the fact they picked a dude born in Germany to play the Comanche chief, Scar. Seriously, what the fuck was up with that? It's like there's a rule that you had to find the widest dude possible to play a Native American in movies prior to the 1970s. I'm not even making some statement about equality or anything. It just seems fake. I will say this about the searchers, and this is going to be a very unpopular opinion, that nobody else agrees with, but I do believe the movie is overrated. Once again, great movie. There's no doubt about it. I enjoy watching it. Seen it a dozen times. I'll watch it again. I'm a huge fan. I know it's an influential movie. It even is supposed to be the inspiration behind Robert De Niro's Taxi Driver, one of my favorite movies. But I don't believe The Searchers is the greatest western ever made. I wouldn't even put it in my top ten list. Yet somehow, it is consistently rated as the best Western of all time. Now, I think that's a little pretentious. I think it's one of those things that people feel like they have to say in order to lend credence to their other opinions. I know you're cracking your knuckles right now getting ready to fire off a strongly worded email. Tell me how wrong I am. But deep down inside, you know I'm right. And honestly, I don't know why you just want to admit that Unforgiven is the greatest Western movie of all time. I know it. And you know it. So stop fucking lying to yourself. The Searchers isn't even John Wayne's best movie. That would be The Shootist. And it's not the greatest collaboration between John Wayne and John Ford. That would be the man who shot Liberty Valance. Coincidentally, The Shootist and Liberty Valance also star the late great Jimmy Stewart, who, a lot of people don't know this, was himself captured by the Comanche as a child and held until the age of 12. And a lot of people don't know that because I just made it up. Alright, sources for this episode are kind of all over the place. I'll definitely have quite a few links in the show notes for you to peruse, should you feel like doing so. I leaned a little bit on uh, Harrigan's Great Big Fang, as well as Zesh's Captives. A couple articles on History.net, which is becoming a decent source here lately. Very well written, long form articles. They seem well researched. Probably the best article I've found on Brit comes from the Christy Clarity Lady I mentioned. And I found that over at TexasRanger.org. Once again, link in the show notes. And there's a great resource I've been turning to as of late that I also mentioned called Indian Depredations in Texas, written by author J.W. Barger, published in, I think, 1889. The book's a compilation of sources of over 250 Native American attacks that took place in Texas between 1830 and 1870. It is not a politically correct book, nor does it take into consideration the opposition's point of view or motivations and nothing sums that up more than what the author J.W. Wilberger said about it himself or i guess i should more accurately say what he said about writers who he found to be too sympathetic to the cause of the native americans wilberger said quote such writers probably never saw a wild indian in their lives never had their fathers mothers brothers or sisters butchered by him in cold blood never had their little sons and daughters carried away by him into captivity to be brought up as savages and taught to believe that robbery was meritorious and cold-blooded murder a praiseworthy act. And certainly, they never themselves had their own limbs beaten, bruised, and burnt, tortured with fiendish ingenuity, nor their scalps ruthlessly torn from their bleeding heads. For if the latter experience had been theirs, and they had survived the pleasant operations as some have done in Texas, we are inclined to think that the exposure of their neck and skulls to the influences of wind and weather might have so softened them as to permit the entrance of a little common sense, end quote. Well, there you go. That's one man's opinion right there, and that's a very strong opinion. And yes, there are a few references to Britt Johnson and Depredations. You can find a free copy online, which I will link to. You know, as problematic, oh, I hate that term, as problematic as the book may be, it is a valuable resource in recording these various raids. Will Barger was in Texas in the old days, his own brother was actually scalped but survived, and he had been cataloged in various Native American raids, even sometimes from people who were eyewitnesses. Is it perfect? No. But it is a record of certain incidents that are not recorded anywhere else. So, take that book for what it is. Alright, a few more clarifying remarks and we will wrap things up. Once again, I want to stress how hard it was to piece together the story of Britt Johnson as well as what exactly happened at the Fitzpatrick Ranch. Earlier I said that Britt's son Jim made a run for it and he was killed before he made it very far. Other sources claim that two of the hostiles were arguing on who got to keep the boy, so in order to settle the dispute, he was simply killed. There's also a couple of tantalizing hints that a strange red-headed white man was with the Raiders when they struck the Fitzpatrick place. If this is true, who the hell could that dude have been? Look, if you find any of this interesting, I would really suggest looking more into the Elm Creek Raid. It's very fascinating. Lots of tales of heroism that day. You know, from the defenders at the Bragg Ranch, to those Border Regiment Confederates who took chase, to the many brave men and boys who made Paul Revere-like raids to warn other settlers. It's a miracle that there were only as few killed as there were. You know, had the Comanche and Kiowa really dug in, they could have killed ten times as many. As it were, they were too smart to do kamikaze type operations or waste time with long sieges. These warriors wanted to get in and get away with as many captives and with as much loot as possible, with as few casualties as possible. Speaking of the dead, every source has a different number. 11, 12, 14, 16. How many Comanche and Kiowa took part in the raid? 200, 500, 1,000. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it probably definitely was not 1,000. If there were a thousand Comanche and Kiowa on the warpath, they could have kept going and taken the entire damn state. Could Britt Johnson speak Comanche? Who knows? Many sources say he could, and that this was not his first rodeo with the hostiles. I tend to think that he probably could make out a little bit of their tongue by the time he was reunited with his family, but there at the beginning, it was probably a little bit of sign, mixed with Spanish and a little bit of Spanglish, that got the job done. At the end of the day, here's what we know. A black man, a former slave by the name of Britt Johnson, was highly respected and attempted to retrieve his family, who were taken into captivity. They were reunited, and seven years later, Britt was killed by that same tribe, the Kiowa. By all accounts, he was a heroic, capable man. All the other details I've tried to piece together, all of it that has to do with Britt, there's no way of proving it. There's likely a lot of truth in there, but we just can't prove it, and sometimes that's just how it be. Regardless, I found his story very interesting. And if you have any additional info on any of this, if you're a member of the family who owns that land where Brits buried and you want to give me a tour, hint, hint, or if you just want to tell me how wrong I am, please don't hesitate to go to WildWestExtra.com and hit that contact button. Email me with any suggestions, comments, or complaints. As many of you know, I do try to answer every single email. And if you like what you're hearing, please share the Wild West extravaganza with somebody you know. I know you're on Facebook. Start sending people links to this on Facebook. I know you got a friend or relative or somebody who loves Old West history. Stop right now and text or email them a link to this podcast. I know you know somebody, bro. Come on, man. And if you really like what you hear and you want to support the cause, feel free to head on over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Wild West and buy me a coffee. Many thanks to those of you who have, most recently, bought me coffee. There's some very generous fans of Old West History out there. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and a big thank you to my Patreon supporters as well. Y'all are amazing. That's all I got today, y'all. Remember, if you're going to do a Google search for Britt Johnson, add the word Comanche or Texas, or you're going to get a thirst trap. Also, a human rides a horse until it dies, then he goes on a foot. A Comanche comes along, gets that horse up, rides him 20 more miles, and then he eats him. Adios.